Before we get started with today's episode, I will share the financial and non-financial disclosures. I am the host of the podcast, This Speech Life, and I receive compensation from speechtherapypd.com. Lindsay, our guest, also receives an honorarium for being today's guest on the podcast. Lindsay also is the co-owner of the company Help Me Grow Speech, where you can find materials related to speech therapy. There are no non-financial disclosures to share today. Hello and welcome to This Speech Life, a weekly audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com, exploring all things related to school-based SLP practice. I'm your host, Caitlin Lopez, MSCCC SLP, a pediatric SLP with 10 years experience in the school setting. Each week, we will cover three need-to-know aspects of that episode topic, two resources related to the topic, and one actionable strategy for tomorrow. honestly say that I think Lindsay is the kindest, the just most genuine SLP that is on social media. I've really enjoyed getting to know her over the last year or so just through Speech Therapy PD and I got to meet her at Kasha. And so I am excited that she gets to be our first guest and that we just get to have a great time talking about all things play-based therapy. Just before we started, Lindsay and I were talking about how we know what play-based therapy looks like at the clinic setting when you have one kid in front of you, but what does that look like in the school setting when you might have a group of students? So Lindsay, what three things do school-based SLPs need to know about play-based therapy? Oh my gosh. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on. I'm honored to be the first guest. And I just love everything that you guys do here at speechtherapypd.com. I just think you guys are a great resource. So I am stoked to be here. Thank you for having me. Three things that I would say that school-based SLPs need to know about play-based therapy and bringing play into your therapy sessions. The first one is that play is appropriate for all ages. So I know a lot of times we think play is for little kids. But if you think about it, kids, older kids still like to play. Adults, we still like to play, right? It just looks differently. Maybe we're not swinging in a swing. Maybe we're playing a board game or maybe we're taking creative pictures and talking about pictures, you know, incorporating those special interests. That would be my second tip is to try to incorporate those special interests. I know a lot of times in grad programs, they, or I was taught to try to guide the student away from their special interest. But mm-hmm. now we know that we can actually bring that into our therapy session and it it makes for better engagement from your student. It allows them to buy in more and to trust you. And then when they're involved and engaged, then there's more language that comes out of them. So we do want to incorporate those special interests if possible. The third one would be to be open. So I know that when I was a new SLP, my professors really harped on Candyland. Like <laughs> yes. this really old board game, right? And growing up, like I probably played Candyland like maybe once or twice in my life and I didn't even really like it. But I was like, okay, like Candyland, mm, I guess I got to buy one. And none of my kids liked it. I didn't even like it. You know, how are my kids going to like it? And so you might have a better idea of what 
is fun for this child rather than your professor or someone who doesn't know the child, right? So trust your instincts. And then on the flip side of that, especially if you're working with teenagers, middle schoolers, a lot of things that they're interested in, we as adults scoff at. So kind of like TikTok, right? Like, (laughs) oh gosh, TikTok, you know, I have a 13 year old stepdaughter. I know what it's like to ask her to come help with the groceries. And she's like doing all like these TikTok moves. I'm like, can you like just come out here and help me with the grocery, you know? But her version of play is to look at these TikToks and to talk about the trends and, you know, to talk about TikTok drama or whatever it is. And when we do talk about that stuff, she lights up in a way that if I made her play Caribou or if I made her play Candyland, she would not light up like that. We do scoff at things, but you have to be open to a certain extent. Obviously, you're not going to let them run away with it. Caitlin, we were kind of talking about that, about letting the child lead. Mm -hmm. And to a certain extent, I like to call it control-led. So yes, you are observing and you're letting them play, but that doesn't mean they just get to do whatever they want. You are going to be guiding them and putting certain things out that are purposeful. So setting up the environment so that you do have some control, but then you're going to observe them and follow them as they go, go through their environment. I like that. So I'm picking out options that I'm okay with that I want them to play with maybe three different toys or different games or something. I like that. I like that. That controlled (laughs) child-led. Yes. Yeah. It's all about finding that balance. For every child, it's going to be different because every kid plays differently too. So just like adults, you know, I have different interests than, than the next person and I play differently than them. So when you're a therapist, part of the challenge is that you have to adjust to everybody who plays so differently. And in a school setting, that can be really difficult when you have that tight schedule and you're back to back and you... To be efficient, you really want to schedule, plan your therapy out in a way where when you have a certain number of activities, you can use those activities across the board Mm -hmm. for all of your kids that day. So when you're planning your activities, make sure that you can adapt them easily. Like sensory bins are a good one for me. I can go from kids who have a matching goal to kids that are answering WH questions or object function goals just with the sensory pin and using the same objects. Awesome. I like that. And something that you said earlier that, you know, when you're talking about Candyland, I remember my first clinical instructor in the school system. I learned a lot from her, but she played Go Fish all day long. And I got bored when it was my turn to start taking over groups. And it was my very first time even working with students And I thought, oh, this is how I have to do things because this is what she did, right? And we all remember imitating our instructors. And I remember sitting there and looking across and these two kids were sitting there like their cards in their face, Oh you know, like, and I'm thinking, yeah, that's exactly how I feel too. And if I'm not having fun, they're definitely not having fun. And I have been there where I'm having so much fun and the students are like, okay, I'm done. Next. (laughs) So I know. 
Yeah, that that is like the worst feeling when you have something that you're super stoked. And this happens so often. Um, <laughs> you have something that you're super stoked about and your student is done with it in like five seconds. And I'm like, oh, all right. I guess that was not as good as I thought it was going to be. But <laughs> I do typically have plan B or C in my back pocket ready to kind of flip that out <laughs> yeah. in case this happen. Right. I just finished supervising a student and it was her first time working with students. I remember telling her her first group that she took over, she planned one activity for the 30 minute session. Cause sometimes, you know, we can figure out how to draw it out, but she doesn't have those skills just yet. And so she looked at me like, hell, <laughs> And I was like, it's okay. All right, let's pull something else out. Or here's ways to draw it out, you know. But it is that over planning that is super helpful. You know, or pulling out that sensory bin. Yes. Okay, let's go ahead and do this. Do you have other go-to things that you like to use for play-based therapy? So sensory bins or Play-Doh, I always add movement. So that would be like the one thing that I would say do now. You could start that tomorrow. And anything that could be like going on a scavenger hunt outside, like in the grass or in the playground. And then you can adapt it to, if you're working on nouns, find find the swing. Where's the swing? You know, and going to it or even hiding little objects out there, right? And if you didn't plan ahead, like obviously you're not going to go out there at recess and put a monkey on the swing. And then, you know, that's not going to be there when you go out there for your session. But you can have it in your pocket and then like low-key plant it, Right. And they can kind of search for animals or you can use adjectives and say, okay, let's find something smooth, right? We know that based off of all of the research that's coming in from sensory integration, that movement is really key in engagement and regulation. And we definitely need regulation first before we even get to engagement. We need that before we even get to language. So really making sure that we have movement in there in the appropriate ways In my little speech setting, I have a little portable hammock that I got. The OT Butterfly has it linked in her bio, and it's from Walmart. It's like 40 bucks, and it's just a chair. So it's not like a big OT swing that's connected to the ceiling because as SLPs, especially school-based SLP, we don't have that luxury. So it's a little hammock swing, and my kids can sit in it. Adults can sit in it as well. And what's coming back from the sensory research is that you don't need a lot of sensory input in order to regulate the system. So if you're trying to regulate the vestibular system, calming is linear, so forward and backwards, and you don't need to swing them super high. They just need a little bit. And so this little hammock, this little portable hammock swing is perfect. It's exactly what we need to get that regulation, to get a little bit of movement. I will even bring activities into the swing. So if my child is having a hard time sitting and reading a book, I'll have them swing and then I'll open the book while they're swinging. And then we're talking about the book. When it comes to planning therapy, things that I like to do is incorporate multi-sensory, multimodal activities that are based around a book. So typically that's like my go-to. So if we're thinking about Pete the Cat, we have Pete the Cat, there's a song that goes with it. Depending on the book, you can incorporate shoes or colors or buttons super easily. And then if there's not a matching song, I usually make up a song that will just go with it. I pick a book that rhymes and then I just throw in a tune 
and the kids don't care, you know, but when you add that music, it kind of, it ignites that right brain. And so now you're using both hemispheres, which is what you want to do. You want to activate as much of the brain as possible. That's also what I tell parents when I'm educating them on play. A lot of times they think that the work has to be done at a table because they do work at a table. And we know that kids work is done through play. So I kind of give them a little bit of a background on neuroscience and let the parents know, you know, every time your child reaches for that block or stacks a block or crosses midline, different parts of their brain is firing up. And when that happens, they're creating these neurosynaptic connections and they're using more of their brain. We want their brain to look like little fireworks. You know, we want everything to light up and they do that best through play. So once the parents kind of understand that, then they understand the importance of playing with them, the kids, and allowing them to kind of explore. And it doesn't always have to be sit down at the table, answer these flashcards, tell me what this is, and doesn't have to be quiz time all the time. Yeah, absolutely. So how does play-based therapy look for maybe your groups of students as opposed to like the one student that you're regulating in your hammock or what are things that we can do when we have that group sitting in front of us? Again, I like to bring out Play-Doh and I like to bring out the sensory bin still because when it's someone else's turn, the other one is matching or answering a question. And then we're also working on waiting and turn-taking, especially with my littles that are going to kindergarten. We're trying to really encourage them to wait for their turn and cheer on their their peer, you know, who's finding the key or whatever it is. And then for the most part, when I do groups, they're able to participate in the scavenger hunt activities, the listening to books fairly well together. When I had older students in a group, sometimes you have like five in a group, we would work together and do like Mad Libs, right? Where we're like filling out a graphic organizer together. And then we come up with the story at the end. You can also do dramatic play, which is great. So bringing a story to life and then talking about the perspective of each character. Why did they do that? How did they feel? And a lot of times the kids really enjoy that because especially the older ones, when they're sitting at desks for the entire day and getting up and actually role playing and living out the characters helps them with that perspective taking. Absolutely. I love dramatic play. My storage does not love it because <laughs> I have I've collected so many props over the years for like different stories or quick little stories that I've like made based off of like parallel stories of Matt and Molly's oh yeah because Matt and Molly is expensive I've noticed that my students do love dramatic play and thank you for that of like opening our eyes you know to like this is play-based therapy. I think so often when we're looking at social media and of course comparing our therapy plans to like that perfect therapy plan we see on social media of like, oh my gosh, how am I going to like find the perfect toy or find the perfect thing to do when really a lot of what we do is just simply having fun. Something that you say very regularly on your account is work for that smile. And I think that's such a good mantra to have when we're looking, you know, how can we make things fun? Yeah, totally. It makes a difference. When we talk about play with the, with our little kids, it's easier to explain about how play incorporates with pre-literacy and how you can give so many good language models 
while you're playing. But the same goes for when your kids are older as well. And you're still working for that smile. You're just doing it in a different way. With like the middle schoolers and high schoolers, I mean, I would always like tease them a little bit about, oh, like, who's your crush this week? You know, and just like taking it outside of the speech room a little bit and making it more personal depending on your child and, you know, and you have to really build that connection. But when you start to understand them and show an interest in them and who they are, then they really start to open up. So it looks different than when you're playing with a child and you're exchanging blocks. And, you know, in that moment with the littles where they kind of acknowledge you and you're, they accept you into their world, basically like, Oh my gosh, I did it. I did it. Right. And with the older kids, it's the same moment, but you're just doing something a little bit different. You're still working for that smile. It's just a little bit harder because they've been in therapy longer. They know all the board games and you do have to get a little bit more creative with it, but the intent is still the same. You're still working for that smile. And I love using this quote, people don't care what you know until they know you care. When you start to get to know that child, and sometimes it's as easy as like asking them what they did that weekend, opening up about a story about yourself that might encourage them to share something about their story. And this is all like taking a break from data, right? Like So doing this work ahead of time, getting to know your client or the student first as a person, and then tackling the data later, I think is really important. And sometimes we forget that. Absolutely. Did you know that SpeechTherapyPD.com has weekly live and interactive webinars? We are the fastest growing CE provider. Subscribe today to get access to over 750 different courses in audio or video format. When you're talking about switching things up, you've got your blocks or your Play-Doh for your younger kids and then making it more relevant for the older kids, bringing in things that's not necessarily like school-based. So a couple years ago, I had my afternoon preschoolers. It was like one of those days where like, The session went long because I was having a hard time corralling them to get them back to class. And so the stuff was still out. And, you know, my sixth grade boys came in and there was still like Play-Doh and a sensory bin. And they were like, yes, can we play with this? Yes. It's like, I guess you guys want to? Okay. You know, and we ended up like having a really fun session. But I think it kind of went back to what you were saying of like, I let them play with it and we had some good conversations and they shared memories of, oh, I play this with my little brother. Or I remember one time making, I used to make pizzas and worms, you know, out of Play-Doh. It is good to remember like, oh yeah, like we think so many times like, oh my gosh, we have to make sure that it's age-appropriate toys or age-appropriate things. But every once in a while, it is fun to bring those things out. Totally. And you kind of always have that inner child. And I think as we grow up, we neglect that inner child and we kind of grow up and we forget that we always enjoy bubbles. <laughs> you know, like We always enjoy Play-Doh, you know, unless you're like a little tactile defensive. But yeah, and that just reminded me when you're working with kids that also have mental health issues like or selective mutism and you're kind of like, what am I supposed to do? Well, when you add in those sensory strategies or some of those more basic play, it shifts the attention off of the child and allows a conversation to happen. And especially in a group, like you can 
have a conversation with the other child and take the attention and pressure off of the child with selective mutism and build rapport and trust that way. So I know that when I first started as an SLP, I was, I was drilling kill. And I mean, that's what I was taught in grad school. Mm-hmm. I was like, get a hundred reps, minimum of a hundred reps, even for language. And I wanted to gouge my eyeballs out. Mm-hmm. I was like, how am I supposed to get 100 trials of who questions when I can't even ask a who question that many times and then yet right. give them enough time to answer and then teach them? And I was like, what? What in the world? So it took me a while to go back. And trust my gut a little bit and then talk to other SLPs who were having similar issues. And then remembering that language is different than Arctic. Language is different than phonology. It's easier to get 100 trials of the K sound. (laughs) So you still do have to play a little bit when you're doing Arctic. But for the most part, you're just working with different kids and different tasks. And if you want to gouge your eyeballs out then most likely they want to gouge their eyeballs out. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I remember my CF year, I only had SDC classrooms on my caseload. Of course, like, let's give the new person these classrooms that nobody wants, which, I mean, I say that only out of, like, that's how it was treated. I loved the classrooms, but it took me a minute because of... What I learned in grad school was not what was going to work for these kids. And I just remember thinking, okay, I have my flashcards and flashcards do not work with your like nonverbal students, you know, like it was just like, this is not, I just remember them looking at me like, what are you doing lady? You know? And then like, I wasn't engaging them. So of course I had behaviors and I had groups of students I worked for county, which is, I don't know how it is in other states, but in California, in Southern California, if your school district cannot service students, then they send them out to the county special ed system. And so I worked for county special ed system, which is why all my kids were SDC. Anyway, they had given me a para, which is like an aid, not a slipper, but I could have an aid that was helping me out. And I'm so grateful to her for this day because she totally changed how I did things. She said, I think you need to try this instead because she'd been a speech para for like 15 years. And she created these amazing like picture board things and pieces that I could add to the pictures, you know, with like that wall putty stuff up until that point. And of course, like she didn't tell me this right away. I think she was waiting to build that rapport with me, you know, of like, I can't tell this girl she's doing everything wrong. She's brand new, which I still, you know, I had to come to that, like, this isn't working. What do I do? And I think that that's a good point of like, okay, how can we make this fun and functional and not that drill and kill that we learned in grad school, which hopefully, I mean, It's been like 10 years since I've been to grad school. I graduated 10 years ago, so I'm hoping that things have changed. Me too. I mean, I'm the same way. It's been years since I've been in grad school, so I'm really hoping that things have changed. I would also really like to know, if it's possible, how many of our listeners right now work with the SDC population or the kids that have a lot of needs or non-speaking or who use AAC to communicate, because that is primarily my caseload as well. And like you said, I love working with them, but definitely felt unprepared 
as a new SLP on how to target all of these goals. And that goes back to something that I always tell SLPs that I'm mentoring is that the number one thing you're going to do is work for that smile and engagement. So however that child shows engagement, because it might be a smile, it might be unforced eye contact, it might not be. They might have their back to you, but then maybe when you roll the train their way, maybe they take it and roll it back. That's connection, right? And so I had to like relook at my therapy and also be a little bit more patient with myself because I was pressing myself onto these kids, like, come on, like sign, sign, vocalize, like give me something. But that turned the therapy about me and not about what the child Mm. needed. Right. And so they're not going to accept me into their world if I'm just out here trying to like get them to do something, (laughs) which is looking back, I feel like that's the energy that I was giving them was like, please, like we're working on this goal. Like, come on, you know, and that's just not it. So I think when you're working with that population, regardless of age, because chronological age is just a number, right? where they're functioning at is where you want to meet them. So you might have a fifth grader who's functioning as far as we know, as far as expressive communication goes, because a lot more can be happening inside that we have no idea what's happening. So we're always going to presume competence. But if what they're giving us is pretty much at like a first grade or kindergarten level, then don't be afraid to bring out an exercise ball or the silly putty or any other type of play that you would typically do with littles because that could be something that they're interested in. And then also, again, try to like look at your therapy from a third perspective and make sure that your energy is one that is calm. So not so data focused, not so goal focused, and just see what kind of cues that your your student is giving you as far as are you on the right track. Absolutely. I think that's a really good point that you brought up as like data driven and like what that energy looks like. Because I know this is something that I worked on with my last grad student was getting out of that headspace of assessing all the time because data can kind of do that to us, right? How do we not assess all the time and how do we actually teach skills? And I think especially with play-based, you know, sometimes we are doing a lot of narrating and there's not necessarily a lot of things that happen expressively initially, right? I'm really grateful that you brought up that point of checking in with, are we focused on the data or are we, and what the student is doing? And also asking ourselves, yes, we are focused on the student, but what am I doing to help this student? How am I teaching these skills? And I think that's something that I definitely, especially when we get close to that student's annual IEP um, and making sure that, you know, oh my gosh, or progress report time, that's definitely a time that I have to check myself and go, okay, how am I teaching these skills as opposed to just simply testing, 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 testing? Right. Exactly. And then Leading into those IEP meetings, I really use that time to educate parents on how to generalize that play at home. And then I ask them, like, how do they play at home? Like, do they like to line up letters or are they into a certain song? Because no matter what age the child that you're working at is, if they like a particular song, I try to take that tune and then change up the words into a different book 
or whatever it is. And again, that's bringing that child's special interest into therapy. So just kind of being creative and again, just trying to find a way in. Are you taking advantage of the certificate tracker? Not only does it store your certificates from all of your evidence-based and practical courses from SpeechTherapyPD.com, but you can also upload certificates earned from other CE providers. It's the easiest way to store and keep track of your CEUs. Just another perk of membership. And it's hard to think of, you know, like... When we have these ginormous caseloads in California, I know Arizona has really big caseloads. I don't know if anybody else is listening or watching in from elsewhere. It is really hard to focus. You know, I think progress report time, IEP time, I'm really good about thinking about, especially IEP, right? I keep seeing that people are saying there's IEP seasons. I've never lived in an IEP season. Like all year long is IEP season for the districts I've worked for. But I mean, that's okay though, because it's not like I have, well, I mean, I'd have a couple a week, but I like having them, you know, just consistently like that because I have like that week where I'm really thinking about like, what this particular student needs and how to meet them where they're at. And I wish I could say that I think about that particular student every single therapy session, you know, unless I see them one-on-one, it's kind of hard to do when it comes to like that lesson planning and picking things out. But one of my colleagues recently shared a document with us that was so cool. It was talking about special interests, you know, for example, like if you have a student that is really into a fidget spinner and like the spinning, try these 10 other toys with them. If you have a student that's really into like squishy toys, try these 10 other toys with them. So you're still taking that special interest, but then you're growing it into other things too. Kind of going on that same point that you were making is like, see what you can use that the student likes and expand on it. Totally. And I know it can be really hard because sometimes our kids do get really stuck on their special interests. So, you know, as much as you can, I like to say, bring in that special interest if you can. But if you can't, just find a balance with yourself too. There are times when I have to really guide the student and let them know like, hey, we're not going to talk about animals right now. I know you love it. First, we're going to talk about this book. We're going to finish it. And then we can talk about the animals because he knows every type of elephant, where they live, how their herds run. And as much as I would love to incorporate that every single time for every session, sometimes it's just not appropriate, especially when you're running a group and they kind of just continue to talk about elephants. And you're like, okay, let's talk about elephants for a little bit. Three questions. Three comments. Cool. Okay. Now it's someone someone else's turn. You know, we have to do the lesson and then we can come back. That is very important in a school base to be able to do. And you, you have to do that in order to manage groups. And I know that's hard. And I know when you're on social media, there's a lot of that talk about be careful with the first thens and be child led and incorporate all the special interests. And yes, you do want to be mindful of all of that, but you do want to find a balance because when you're a school-based SLP, you do have academics that you are targeting. And your whole purpose is to make this child successful in the school, in that school system. So you do want to advocate, you want to educate parents, and you want to encourage a child and give them support and confidence. But you also want to make sure that you don't 
go so off kilter that you forget kind of your purpose here at school. SLP too. That's such a great point that you bring up, Lindsay. I've worked in both private setting and school setting, and they're vastly different. Private setting, you can kind of just do whatever you want to do within reason, right? But there are things that I have worked on with students that I thought, man, I would never work on this with a student in the school setting simply because you're triaging in the school system, I feel like, because your caseload is so big. And if it doesn't impact academics necessarily, like you're not going to work on it or, you know, you work on things vastly different too. So I think that's a really good point to bring up. Whereas I also know like the way that I see things at the private setting is vastly different than the way that my colleagues see things in terms of like, oh, have you thought about one of my colleagues was like, the family wants me to work on reading. We don't do that. And I was like, actually, we do. Yeah. <laughs> right. um, and so, you know, it was kind of fun to, to bring that perspective. But play-based in the school setting is definitely a much more controlled thing than in the clinic setting, which is why I really love your point on make it a controlled child play. You know, you give them options that you are good at or that you are okay with them doing. And of course, like picking targets of things that are going to be beneficial to them. I know open and close or put in, take out or things like that and picking toys that are good at that. We have a couple of comments Virginia Mercanda had said, yes, we all want to gouge our eyes out with that. I think that was in reference to your 100 trials with language. Yes, it's the worst. Yeah. And Melissa says, thank you. Really appreciate the honest discussion. Jennifer Martin, she has a mix of students on her caseload. We have an autism academic program on my campus, ages pre-K through fifth grade. And she agrees that meeting the kiddo where they are at is where it is at. So Yes. Another reality that school SLPs have that are different than the private practice or med SLP outpatient is that we really, since we are so academically driven and our goals are tied to common core standards, we are usually working on goals that are not fun, like vocab goals, identifying adjective goals. And as far as teaching the goal, you could definitely incorporate that in play. You can bring out all these textures and work on adjectives and teach them that way. But there are times when I have to bring flashcards and especially during those progress report and IEP times to make sure I have the really good hard data. And I will like flip through the cards just to get like an inventory of what they know. So it's almost like a pre-test, post-test kind mm-hmm. of thing that I do. And then afterwards, we're playing with something that's very high special interest, right? So I like, I come in with that very short drill and kill for a second. And then, then we're rewarding with like all the elephants, you know, or whatever <laughs> it is that the kid likes. And then I have to like drill and kill again for a hot second. So every once in a while, as a school SLP, you will find yourself drill and killing and just do it to the point where you don't want to gouge your eyeballs out. So like get like five or six trials in, then do something fun. You know, when you're at the point where you're like, you know, I'm done, like then the kid's done too. (laughs) So it's not fun because these goals are just not fun sometimes. Like identifying main ideas and sometimes it's just not fun, but there are ways to incorporate play into it still. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a good point, you know, of like, 
sometimes it's just not fun, right? Or sometimes, you know, if you're working on that art and that kid is like, I am over it. Oh gosh. I don't want to work on it, you know? But there are, like you said, there are ways to make it fun. So hopefully we can. Or like you said, you know, when you have to kill and drill or drill and kill. (laughs) Um, Just to go ahead and bring in the fun things too. Yeah. And know that it's not you. It's just the setting that we work in. That's just a reality that we all face is how to find that balance. And a couple of resources that I wanted to share of where I get a lot of my ideas. Obviously, a lot of SLPs get their ideas from Pinterest. I actually like to follow a lot of preschool teachers specifically. Oh, that's <laughs> a great idea. Yes. So on Instagram, like these preschool and kindergarten teachers, they are a different breed. Yes. Oh my gosh. They're like angels on earth. The ideas that they come up with, and you can basically take any of their ideas and tailor it to meet your speech and language goals. One that I really like is engaging littles. So engaging underscore littles. I just stalk her page a little bit because she just always has like something that's sensory and then they take their item to something that's on the table. Like maybe they match it and then they're coloring something else and then getting like repetition of vocabulary that way. Also expanding the attention span of focusing on that one topic. I mean, that's something that I think all of my kids need, regardless of their age, is attention span. And just focusing on sometimes even just getting through a book. Like I'll have to start a book and then we have to take a break and then come back to the book later. So some of these teachers are just great to follow for ideas. Thank you. Thank you for that. I never thought to follow preschool or kinder teachers. Mm-hmm. They're great. And even with the older kids, like we talked about earlier, even though they're older, they still enjoy some of the play-based, like stuff that we would play with younger kids. It still can be totally fun for them. Absolutely. So like your kids that came in and was like, Play-Doh, yes, you know, <laughs> and incorporating fun that way. I think it's, it's just so funny, like what you discover of your older kids of what they like when you kind of just let them Rome, or if you let them choose, like, what do you want to play with today? They kind of give them control that way. It's interesting what you find out. Absolutely. And it, you know, I really felt like that session was almost healing for them because it was this group of sixth grade boys that are cool kids on campus. And then they got to just kind of relax and be kids again. I don't know if anyone else feels like kids are so much older now than when I was in elementary school. But, you know, we didn't have social media and we didn't we didn't necessarily have some of the pressures that these kids have. And so I definitely feel like it was a fun thing for them to just to have fun with. And and like you said, you know, we all love bubbles. I got a bubble machine because of not being able to blow bubbles because of our masks in California. And so I was so excited. I feel like I was more excited about my bubble machine than my students were. Yeah. Um, It was engaging for a minute for them, but I was like, come on, guys. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And when you have those things available, it's just interesting to see what happens because something as easy as like a weighted blanket or a weighted stuffed animal that they have on Amazon. If you have that in your office and you could just like pass it around and then you'll start to see like which kids are actually more sensory than you thought. 
And if you want to get more out of them, more engagement, more regulation, more language, especially if you're working on a difficult task, then having some of these sensory strategies available in your room is going to make a world of a difference. Mm. And you're like, oh, this kid isn't sensory. He doesn't get OT. Well, remember that school-based OTs don't really work on sensory all the time. It's more of a private-based OT, or I know for our school district, that's not, you know, they're really working on fine motor skills and pre-writing or writing skills. They obviously use sensory regulation in their sessions, but, but a kid who is, and this is the difficulty with being in a school, is if the child is not suffering academically, so if they are sensory-seeking or have a sensory processing disorder and yet are performing academically appropriate for their age, they're not going to get those services. But if they do have speech and language, then you know there's something amiss, right? So having those sensory strategies in your room as a school-based SLP, I think is extremely helpful, more so than, you know, because I mean, a lot of times I think we think, oh, OT will fix that, or I'll just consult with them. And you definitely should, especially if you think, if you have an inkling that a student has some kind of sensory processing disorder, then I would definitely pull an OT in and say, hey, these are this is what I'm seeing. Because they're going to have a breadth of knowledge, of foundation, just based off of their schooling. And although the school limits them on what they're able to work on with that student, if they have that SLI eligibility, then I'm still going to pull that OT in and get their input on what they're thinking for sensory. Because in that way, you're going to be able to target your goals a lot better. Absolutely. I would say my OTs have been some of my greatest resources, like even in terms of like, hey, I don't know if this is a sensory thing. And they usually always say, oh, yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, okay, what else can I do like to help this student engage better? Or, hey, have you noticed anything that works for a student who acts this way? You know, for because like you said, they may not get OT services. And last year, I was so lucky. I mean, it worked out. We worked it out. We had a good working relationship. I shared an office with an OT. Oh, yes. And it was awesome. Like, you know, if she didn't have kids or if she, like, we would work together with some kids and co-treat with one kid that I had. And it actually was really awesome because we were working on getting him an AAC, got him an AAC. She got to see exactly what it was that I was doing with him. And so I think because we work so closely together, you know, she was using the AAC in her sessions and then both of us were putting on the pressure for the classroom aides and teacher to be using it too. You know, at first we were like, we have to share an office. How's this going to work? But then it worked out great. And we had such a good working relationship that we definitely both felt like kids were meeting goals that we shared in a great way. So, so yeah, you know, reach out to those OTs. Oh my gosh. That's like the best case scenario because I mean, Leah has OT background as well. And it's like, because obviously we're looking at them through a speech and language lens, Mm -hmm. but we need them to be regulated. Right. And so we don't need to know all the details not to the extent that the OTs go through because they are detailed in their knowledge and education, all of the sensory systems, but we do need to know it because it ties in with language. I mean, so closely. So yeah, like if you have access to an OT, I mean, I had to buy my own stuff because my kids were so dysregulated. I mean, this year it's, I think my kids are the most dysregulated that they've ever been. And a lot of 
SLPs say, oh, we'll just take them after OT. And I'm like, well, that's not always possible, especially in a school schedule. Like, I would love to take them all after OT, but that doesn't always fit. Also, my kid is only in the optimal arousal range for two minutes, and then he's dysregulated again, and then I need to regulate him again. Another hint about sensory regulation is when you're taking data and all of a sudden you start to bomb and you're like, whoa, what is happening here? You're probably trying to take data when they're dysregulated. So let's look back at that regulation again. And that's why I had to get the exercise ball, wobble seat, the hammock swing. And this all works across the board. When you have a sensory processing disorder, you don't grow out of it. It's not like you just, it disappears with age the child just learns as they get older, they learn what they need in order to regulate. But when you get them young or if they don't know what disorder they have going on, then they really rely on us adults that are around them to help them to figure it out. Absolutely. So much of what we do is so interconnected. Oh, totally. I remember, well, I didn't even know what an occupational therapist was until after I was my first year working in the SDC classrooms and there was an OT and I was like, what do you do? I didn't even know. And I thought, man, this is so cool, you know, because she did work on a lot of sensory things. She worked on handwriting too, but I learned so much from her. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, they need her way before they get to me. Right. I think that's such a good point to bring up as far as like, even thinking about data collection and thinking about sometimes we do have great lesson plans. The lesson plan still isn't bad. The play that we've created isn't bad. It's that it's not right what that student needs in that moment, you know? In that moment. That moment can change. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) So, Lindsay, what is one actionable strategy you have for us to try out tomorrow to become better play-based therapists? I said it earlier, and my number one thing would be to add movement. Get them up and walking around activate as many parts of the brain as you can incorporate that sensory all those sensory strategies and again if you don't know try Mm. try it because then you might also figure out oh he's a little tactile defensive or oh he's auditorily sensitive and then you use that to counsel parents as well because a lot of times the parents are unaware of what's happening in all of their systems and all they're seeing is that their child is acting out or behaving badly, or they're not using the proper language. They're not using kind words. It's not a language issue. It's more of a sensory issue. And they're just so closely tied together. So, you know, I love parent education and parent coaching. And that's just another big one that I continually educate parents on. Thank you. I love that point of just try. You know, I think there have been several times where I've thought, oh, you know, I'll see something and I'll think, oh, I should try that. And then I'm afraid of like, like, for example, your scavenger hunt, right? I'm thinking, okay, I know what groups I can try that with. Oh man, these two students would really like it, but I don't know if I can handle if, you know, homeboy runs off and (laughs) I'm like, Johnny, come back. Like, what am I going to do? But I have to try, right? Mm Mm-hmm. You can try and, you know, at least when in a school, typically they're all, it's all gated. 
I've had that before where I looked out the window and I just see one of the students running across the structures and I see like the teacher running after them because they tried something and it didn't go quite as well. But you might be surprised. You can also try like a little scavenger hunt with a bunch of different sensory bins or like having things up and down. Do a little trial in your room, in your safe space before you go out into the wild of the playground. (laughs) I love it. I love it because you're right. Like, you know, we try things and we're like, oh my gosh, that went so much better than I expected. Or I'll learn something new about a student. And I have to remember that kids rise to the occasion. Oh, yes. I mean, if COVID didn't teach us anything, I mean, our kids are pretty tough. They're pretty tough and they're very capable. Absolutely. Absolutely. If anybody, we have just a few more minutes left. If anyone has any questions or comments that they want dying to be answered, Virginia did post a link to a Walmart, the folding hammock chair. Yeah. That sounds like mine. Yeah. Walmart folding hammock. Yeah. I mean, I believe it. If you want to double check, the OT butterfly on her Instagram has it on her link. There's a couple different hammocks. There's some that look like a chair. And I believe Costco has one that looks like a chair. My only stipulation with that one is that it's very high up. Mm. So the kids have to, if your child is fairly short, then you have to really lift them up. And that can be a little bit problematic. But again, if you have, if you only work with older kids or adults, then that chair might be better because it's more, that one is more of a rocking chair. So there's a few that you can look through to see what would best fit your students' needs. A couple other resources that I could talk about for anybody who's interested in learning more about play-based therapy. Anna DSLP and Words Matter SLP has put together the play-based therapy course. One thing that I really like about that course is that they do talk about taking data, and that's a very challenging thing to do while you are in play-based therapy. So they talk about data taking, and they also have very concrete examples of here's a toy, here's goals you can target. Here's Mm -hmm. ways you can adapt it. If you're a busy school-based SLP and you're like, I don't have time to plan in that course, they go through details, kind of plan it out for you. But that course is paid. So, you know, that one does cost some money, but they post things for free on their Instagram as well. Two other SLP accounts that I would highlight is Shelby SLP. She's really good at featuring games and Mm -hmm. showing how she adapts them and incorporating sensory bins, and also incorporating movement. So again, multiple steps for one activity is great. And then Teach Speech 365, Nikki, she has a lot of resources that are good for older kids. So boom cards, right? And that's one thing that's been great about COVID is that we've been, we got really creative with how we started doing therapy and boom cards and books, right? The video books, they're just great. I mean, even like the field trips, like Disneyland field trips on YouTube. I mean, that's a great one to bring in with your older kids too. But she also has a lot of really good resources if you have older kids and you're looking for fun ideas that are easy prep. Absolutely. Thank you. I have really loved using Maka and Roni videos for my older kids. They're like silent animated movies, you know, and they're short, like some of them are three minutes, some of them like longer ones are seven minutes. And I love using them 
because we'll like work on inferencing and they're cute, they're funny, and there's so much that you can pull from them. You can work on story grammar elements, you can work on inferencing, you can work on cause and effect type. Well, I guess that's inferencing, but <laughs> um, yeah. but it's, and then it's kind of fun to have them like after we watch it a couple times and we dissect it, then I'll have the kids pick out who they want to be. Do you want to be Mecca? Do you want to be Roni? Do you want to be the head doctor? And have them try and like, I'll turn it on and then I'll use my classroom iPad and video them and then we'll try and like, watch it again, you know, how they did and then we'll dissect how they did like, and not necessarily dissect. It's a lot of building them up because it's hard to oh, do sure. to like oh. voice over. I mean, it's hard for me to do it. Oh, but I bet they love that. That sounds so fun and dynamic. Yeah, it is. It's hard. And it's simple in that it's just on YouTube. But it's surprising to me like, oh, yeah, this is a really hard skill. And it's kind of fun to get into, okay, why are they having a hard time with this? How do we bring that in to teach some of these things, you know? But yeah, Maka and Roni has been a good one for older kids. And again, coming back to that, like, dramatic play that I'm a big fan Mm -hmm. of. Oh, it's great. I love it. Awesome. Why don't we just go ahead and recap real quickly the Mm -hmm. three, the two, and the one. So the three things we need to know. Yep. So the three things that we need to know is that everybody plays differently. There's no right or wrong way to play, especially if you're working with neurodiverse students. Their brains are completely different and beautiful, and you just have to learn how they play. So there's no right or wrong way. Be open to anything that they're interested in. Also, trust your gut because what someone is telling you to do might not be right for your students. And try what you think and what you feel would go well. It might fail, but also you might succeed and you might be surprised. And then incorporate special interests. Don't be afraid to incorporate special interests when you can and try to find that balance. I think if you can find that balance, your kids would love it. And the benefits are just so much better than if you cannot incorporate those special interests. But also there will be times when you can't. I know being a school SLP is tough and sometimes you can't, but try. (laughs) And then the two resources, I would say one really good one that's all-encompassing is the Playbase course by Anna DSLP and Words Matter SLP. But the other one is just there's a lot of free tips on Instagram to following these accounts and following those teacher accounts. The teachers are amazing. So, and once you find one, I mean, the algorithm picks you up and they're like, follow so, 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 and so. And you're like, it just unlocks a whole new world. So search for those teachers on Instagram. And then the one big takeaway that I would say you can start tomorrow is just to add movement and add sensory strategies and just see how that changes your therapy room, see how that opens up another layer of your kids that you might not have known was there. Absolutely. Oh, thank you, Lindsay. You gave us so much knowledge and wisdom and I just I loved it I love the conversation you know as you were recapping my biggest takeaway of everything you were saying was like you know it's not so much about all of the hard things we learned in grad school but like the critical thinking that we came away from grad school with 100% and like that critical thinking is what makes us each of us like individually just phenomenal clinicians. 
And coming back to that, like, okay, I do know what I'm doing. I do know how to think about my own students. I know them. I can trust myself. So thank you for giving us, at least for giving me that confidence as you were doing your recap. Of course, of course. No, I, you know, this is something that I love doing and I love guiding new SLPs on their journey because, you know, transitioning into a school, you know, is very, it's daunting and it's, it's stressful and it is burnout is around every corner, but there are ways to combat it and there's ways to find that balance. I love helping people and helping people find that balance. So this is great. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for joining us. I think we need to have you back to talk about parent coaching and parent education eventually. I think that would be awesome. And thank you, everyone that joined us for the first episode. This is so exciting. Just as a reminder, at the conclusion of the course, please log into your speechtherapypd.com account and into the course portal and complete all modules, especially the one entitled quiz so that you can get your live CEU credit for today. And we will be back here same time next Tuesday. Yay. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, everyone. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks for joining us at This Speech Life. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs. We appreciate your positive reviews and support and would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe.